continuation of this message of love and righteousness, today I wish to speak about the confidence, probably today and this afternoon, the confidence that we must have in Him. Four times John will use this word, translated three times confidence, one time boldness. It's the same Greek word. Let's read it. First John 2 and verse 28. And now little children abide in Him that when He shall appear we may have confidence and not be ashamed before Him at His coming. Chapter 3 please. Verse 21, Beloved, if our heart condemn us not, then have we confidence toward God. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. Chapter 4, verse 16, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us, God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Herein, that is in that dwelling, is our love made perfect. That we may have boldness or confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. Chapter 5 and verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have in Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He heareth us. And if we know that He hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of Him. You say amen to God's Word this morning. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated today. John does a masterful job of weaving together and expressing together these two great themes, love and righteousness. And a second theme that must go to hand in hand with that, and that of faith. The scripture declares that the just shall live or the righteous shall live by faith. The scripture tells us that we are justified by faith. That faith is in itself, is that when a man truly puts his faith in God, that will produce a righteous life. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. It was imputed unto him for righteousness. John makes that his um, reason for writing this book that he writes because to those that already Believe God. He said, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. So he writes that men may believe. They already believe, but he writes to fortify, to confirm that belief that they have in God, in Jesus Christ, so that they are not shaken from it. So these two 
these twins, I should say, love and faith is that which will produce the righteousness and, and make it uh, evidenced in our life so that if a righteous life is lived, it's going to be lived because a man loves God and a man believes God. And if either of those are absent, the other will not be present. There's no faith, there's no love. If there's no love, there's no faith. And if there's no faith in love, there's no righteousness. That becomes the very theme of John throughout this entire epistle. And, uh, and he, he talks about this and, and he, he emphasizes it and stresses it again and again, as I said, hitting it from various angles. And he mentions particularly about this idea of love being perfected in us. Uh, and, and that this love that is given and has placed within our heart must uh, go through a process, if I, say, or if I may, or it must be perfected. The love must not simply sit there stagnant. There is love placed in us, but something must be done with it. It must grow. It must be perfected. And so John gives us evidence of this idea of love that is perfected. And it mentions three things that evidence perfected love. One is that there is a complete obedience to Christ. There is a keeping of the commandments of Jesus Christ and a, a keeping of His Word. We mentioned that in chapter 2, that evidence that love has been perfected in you is that you are obedient to the commands of Christ and you keep His Word. Secondly, evidence that Christ's love is perfected in you is that you love your brother. You love your brother. You are your brother's keeper. You will not be as Cain that's killed his brother, that was jealous of his brother, that was angry at his brother, so that anger and jealousy will not come in you and cause you to mistreat your brother, but rather you will love him. That if you are found deficient and your brother is found uh, uh, where he meets the demands of God, you will not get mad at your brother. Some folks do that sometimes. That whenever a brother is exalted and they are uh, uh, put down, if you will, or abased, then rather than fix the problem by which they were abased, they get angry at the one that was exalted. They get angry at the brother that was lifted up. That's what Cain did. Cain had the same opportunity as Abel. Cain had the same uh, 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 place that was available to him as Abel. And John speaks about this over in chapter 3. He will talk about it. That we're not to be as Cain who was of the wicked one. He was of the devil, the enemy, and he slew his brother because his own works were evil and his brother's works were righteous. And so he says that, that you, you, Cain did not allow love to command his heart. He came, uh, he was full of anger, he was full of wickedness, and he abode in the wicked one, and thereby he slew his brother. How you feel towards your brethren, your actions toward them, whether or not you forgive them, whether or not you embrace them, how 
how you treat them, how you deal with your brothers is evidence of whether or not God's love is perfected in you. And the third thing, he comes to this idea of, of love being perfected in us and mentions that uh, it is perfected through abiding in God, God in us and us dwelling in God. That as we stay in God and God uh, manifests His glory in us and we live our life in Him, love will be perfected. And so the result of that is, is there will be this boldness and confidence that we will have. Now, I submit to you today, we need that. I submit to you today that this boldness and confidence is essential to the Christian life. Think about it. We have based all of eternity on the works of one man. It was stated to us this morning by Pastor Cottle that we have left the gods. The Hindus serve many gods. I suppose if you serve many gods, if one fails, you can bank on another one. If you serve a thousand and nine hundred ninety-nine, go back, you still got one. You know, if you serve, so I, I don't know if that means that they have in some way uh, diminished their chances of losing by, by having a, a, a multiplicity of gods. But for us, uh, we have believed in one God. And everything that we do is based upon that one God. I have built my house based on that one God. I have uh, I managed my finances based on that one God. I have given my entire career and life based upon that one God. I have ran my home and raised my children based on that. I have taken my attitude towards this world based on that. Everything in the world that I approve or disapprove of is all based upon upon my faith and my love towards this one God. I will tell you if you're going to put all your eggs in one basket, you better know what you're doing. If you're going to put all your faith into one, there better be some assurance somewhere. There needs to be some confidence. I'm glad today that our salvation isn't shaky. Our salvation isn't something that is vacillating, that is a, a hope so or a maybe so or, or it might be so or, or, you know, I'm just going to take my chances. I'm not trying out God. I'm not taking my chances in God. I'm telling you His witness and His testimony has been confirmed in me and there is in the Christian life a great confidence that we go out and we go to people. You don't see the Hindus going door to door. You don't see the Muslims going door to door but it will be the Christian who will be so confident in his salvation, so confident in his Lord that he will take this and he not only lives it himself, he tells others about it. He not only puts his eggs, if you will, in the proverbial basket he tells others to do the same. And he goes with such confidence and such a, a sense of assurance and boldness that it becomes the very essence of his being. It becomes a, a trademark of the child of God. We're not meant to be a people. We're like, well, I, I, I hope I make it. I hope... That when I get before Jesus, everything turns out all right. I would not leave that judgment day to speculation. You would not be a wise person if you left judgment day simply to a maybe so, to a toss of the dice, to a spin of the wheel, 
and just hope your name gets called and hope that maybe you're going to make it. Something on which your eternity is founded, something that controls your eternal destiny must not be a matter of speculation or doubt. It must be a matter of assurance. It must be a matter of something that is firm and fixed. And that something must be confirmed in my heart again and again so that I know in whom I have believed and so that I can declare beyond the shadow of a doubt that God is real, God is with me and I know the salvation that I have in Him and when I meet Him I am absolutely certain of the outcome of that meeting. Now let's look at this here for a little bit, this assurance and how that it comes to us and some things that He that he talks about because this is all tied to love so that John has such that he is, he is tying these ideas together. We love God, which means we obey God. And if we obey God, we keep his commandment. And his commandment is to love and to love one another. And if we stay in God and we love one another, then all the fear of judgment day is going to be taken away. And we will be a people of boldness whenever we stand before God and face Jesus Christ. It will not be a time of timidity. We will not face him with a sense of, of wonder or, 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 again, a sense of timidity and cowardice. Uh, and, and just kind of hoping that he doesn't cast us out that there will be a courage that you and I will possess uh, so that we are not only not afraid to face him we are yearning to face him we are not running through him, from him we are running to him so let's take a look at those things here if you will with me this morning now let's look I've got some ground to cover and there's I hope you've been reading this epistle because these these ideas and concepts are so constantly expressed by John throughout the epistle that I have to go back and forth and I have to, to, to share that so that I, I want you to see how he has constantly reinforced this theme. Now let's look at the first occasion. This word appears, chapter 2 and verse 28, that I read to you. Well, notice what he says. And now little children abide in him that when he shall appear... We may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. And he speaks about three things in that verse that I want to speak, uh, uh, talk to you about, if you will. He talks about this idea about abiding. And then he talks about the appearing. And he talks about not being ashamed at that appearing. And later on, he's going to mention something else tied to that down in, in chapter 3. But let's look at some of the things that are expressed here, if you will, about this business of having confidence. There is this, this, this uh, option, if you will. It's one or the other, not something in between. But he states here that, that you will have confidence and not be ashamed. In other words, uh, that if you don't have confidence, uh, you will be ashamed. So you will either be confident or you will be ashamed, one or the other. It's not going to be anywhere in between there. The Christ is coming. The Lord himself is going to appear. And this, the stress in this passage is not necessarily about the rapture. But the stress in this passage is when it becomes a public event. When Christ appears publicly. When he is manifested to the world. When people see him. When we are all brought before him in judgment. At that day 
of public judgment, then what will it be? Will it be that you will be able to stand before him in judgment and confidence? Or will you be shamed? Will you be discredited? Will you be dishonored? Will you be somebody who will be literally the idea as of disfigured? The idea of this word is shamed. It's not so much that you will, uh, it's not emphasizing your feelings. It's not emphasizing the sense from, from man's perspective of how and he's going to feel timid and he's going to feel ashamed and he's going to feel guilty. That's not the sense. The emphasis, although that will be present, it's not placing an emphasis upon the feelings of the believer or the person who didn't believe. It is placing emphasis upon what that coming is going to do to the person. The appearance of Christ that if you have not abided rather in Him, if you have not lived your life in Christ, when you have to stand before Him, it will be shameful to you. You will be discredited. You will be dishonored. You will be disfigured, if you will. That's literally the meaning of the word is shamed. And so that the emphasis is upon what will happen to you. Not so much how you feel, but what the coming is going to do to you. It's going to expose your hypocrisy. It's going to expose your unbelief. It's going to expose your rebellion. It's going to expose the fact that you did not love God. Your selfishness and your self-centered life will be exposed and thereby you will be discredited. You will be ashamed and dishonored in front of all of humanity. That's the idea. Now how do we avoid that? Obviously he says, I want you to abide in him. Now John will use this word. Let's look at it several times in the passage. He will use this word and we're going to go back first to verse 24. Three times it's used in this, word, in this verse, but it's translated using three different words in the King James Version. Verse 24, let that therefore abide in you, which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall remain, it's the same word as abide, in you ye shall also or ye also shall continue, same word as abide, in the Son and in the Father. I'd like to read it again, substituting the word abide everywhere that word appears. It's been translated three different ways in, by three different English words, but it's all the same Greek word. I'd like to read it by using that one word so you get a sense of this, how he in, uh, emphasizes, let that therefore abide in you which ye have heard from the beginning. If that which ye have heard from the beginning shall abide in you, ye shall also abide in the Son and in the Father. Now he talks about you abiding, and then he comes down to verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. So he talked about you shall abide in the Son, and you shall abide in the Father, back in verse 24. And now abide in him, he says, so that when he appears, you may not be ashamed. Now let's look at this abiding because a couple of things were connected to it. Back to verse 24. There's this idea of something abiding in us. In verse 28 he tells us to abide in him. But he tells us that the reason that we abide in him is because he first abides in us. He talks about that, that uh, there's that one or that therefore abide in you which you've heard from the beginning. It has to continue. It must remain. It must continue to abide in you. That which you have heard from the beginning. 
beginning. Well, let's back up a little bit, if you will. Now, John is the one who's espoused this business about the beginning. If you go back to chapter 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard. John is going to tell them that what we've heard is from the beginning, and this is also the beginning of the gospel. One of the gospel writers, I think it's Mark, he begins his gospel, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. John will go back beyond that and say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John will come to his epistle and say, that which was from the beginning. When Jesus came, there's a beginning in the sense of His deity. His deity is without beginning. It was already there. When the beginning of humanity came, and when the beginning of creation came, creation began. But God did not begin. Whenever creation began, He already was. Whenever time started, whenever space came to be, God already existed. He was in the beginning. He was at the beginning and was before the beginning ever came about. But in time and space, He enters in to a sense of fellowship or I should say contact. He enters in to interaction with time and space. And then His humanity will have a definite beginning relative to His humanity. You can point to a day when the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word has not always been flesh. The Word has always been, but it has not always been flesh. It was there in the beginning, but it had a beginning relative to flesh. And when it became flesh, the gospel began in that regards of our salvation. Oh, it was alluded to. There were types and shadows in the Old Testament. But when it finally comes to the place and it's going to be a reality and I can lay hold of it and I can experience it and I can know it. It's whenever the Spirit of God moved upon the womb of the Virgin Mary and He placed in that womb oh, the incarnate God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God is now taking on flesh and He will walk among us and dwell among us. And that beginning is there. There was something that brought to us a beginning. There is the beginning of humanity. God already was. There's the beginning of the gospel is when God became flesh. And there's the beginning of that gospel in your experience. And that was whenever he came to dwell in you. (laughs) Hallelujah. He first creates us. He second becomes one of us. And then thirdly, he saves and births us again into the kingdom. So that our life in that regards, in some sense, has three beginnings, if you will. There's the beginning of the creation when manhood came. There's the beginning of the gospel when the, when the redemption is provided for. And then there is the beginning of when that came a reality in my life. But he said in you, he is talking about that third beginning. And that which you heard from the beginning. In other words... You came to a place where you were going along, and then in your life there was a beginning. It wasn't when you were born into this world. It wasn't when they they took you from your mother's womb. It wasn't when you took your first step in the world. It wasn't when you spoke your first word. It wasn't whenever you were confirmed of the temple on the day of your circumcision. It wasn't when you became maybe even a, a young man of the age of 12. It was whenever the gospel of Christ came to you, and you heard 
heard the gospel and you heard the story and you received it and you believed in Jesus Christ. That day for you was a beginning. That day for you was a new life. That day for you marked that you turned from idols to serve the true and the living God. Something happened on that day. I want you to notice quickly what he says. We're going to go back a little bit further in the passage in chapter 2. He talks about it in verse 18 forward. Little children, it's the last time. And as you have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists, whereby we know that it is the last time. They went out from us. What a powerful statement. Watch, watch this through the passage. But So many ideas getting tied together. They went out from us. They got their start right here. Most false religion gets its start in the midst of true religion. The Antichrist found his grounding where Christ was preached. They went out from us. They were with us. They went out from us. The reason they went out is because they weren't of us. There was an incompatibility. There was a lack of agreement. Oh, glory. You ought to remember that. You ought to remember that. Any belief, any person that holds to a belief that is destructive and contrary to the true gospel of Jesus Christ should never be welcome or comfortable in the body of Jesus Christ. Oh, today we have become so tolerant. We have become so compassionate. We have become so welcoming that we think that the doors of the church ought to be open and inclusive. So open and inclusive that everybody feels like they can be welcome. In most churches, the devil feels welcome. I mean, in most churches, the devil wouldn't feel any threat. He would be welcome with open arms and feel no problem. But John said there was so much pressure. I know I'm reading between the lines here, but what caused them to go out? Oh, just because they were not of us. There's a lot of folks that weren't of us, but they feel content to stay among us. It happened at Pergamos. He said, you have there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam and taught Balaam to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel and to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit fornication in other words they tolerated it and he said if you don't bring the sword the Lord will bring the sword I'm just telling you that in the early church falsehood was not comfortable in the midst of truth oh an antichrist did not feel that he could stay among those who believed in Christ that our love for Jesus be so powerful and so strong that those who hold to other beliefs cannot remain among among us. That's not being harsh. If you want, you can entertain cancer in your body all you want to. Say, well, I don't want to hurt it. That's okay. You don't hurt it, it will hurt you. If you don't put that out, it'll put you out. There's no option. And so John said they went out from us. They weren't of us. Watch now. 
I would have you to note that everybody didn't leave. And John said they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would no doubt have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that they were not all of us. Woo, glory. Now watch what he says. But ye have an unction. This word is going to appear later in the passage. You may go ahead and note it if we'll get to it momentarily. Verse 27. But the anointing, same Greek word. In one verse it's translated unction in verse 20. And in verse 27 it's translated anointing. But it's the same word. He said, but you have an unction or an anointing from the Holy One. I like that. The Holy One. The one whose character is pure. The sinless one. The one without a stain. The one without sin, without deception, without guile. Oh, glory. They were not of us. They were not holy. So they left. They were an actual antichrist. So they left the midst of the church that was preaching Christ and was devoted to Christ. Oh my, let it be the church so devoted to Christ that anything that's not devoted to Christ cannot remain in the midst. It either converts or leaves. But he says this, you've got an unction and it's come from the Holy One. And he says, and you know all things. Let's just face it here for a moment. It can always be, it's always shaking, it's always troubling when someone leaves us. Someone that's been a part of us, someone that's been established with us. Not talking about a visitor who just visited and checked you out and didn't like what they saw and left, but talking about someone that's been among you for some time, maybe years. And then all of a sudden, they go out. And you find out they start doing things entirely different than they did when they were here. And you find out that it was in their heart all along. Mm -hmm. So that when they got the opportunity to, to change, they got the opportunity to display their, uh, their desires without being discredited without being ashamed and being different than the crowd they were in. Whenever they got an opportunity to kind of be what they wanted to be, they did what they wanted to do. And they became that. And it can always be kind of troubling and shaking you when that happens because you begin to wonder, well, am I right? You may begin to question yourself and say, well, is the church right? They went down the road. They, they claim to still know Christ. They claim to still do these things. These people who were antichrist were antichrist by their actions, not by their declarations. They did not go out and proclaim themselves to be antichrist. They claimed themselves to be followers of Christ. They claimed to have fellowship with God. They were antichrist, not in profession, but in practice. They were not antichrist because they declared they were so. They were antichrist because the real people declared they were so. The counterfeit never presents his money as counterfeit money. He always presents it to you as genuine. He says, here it is. And he pretends to buy something with counterfeit money, but he doesn't tell you it's 
it's counterfeit money, he tells you that it's genuine. But the man who knows the genuine says, that's counterfeit, and I want nothing to do with it. They do not identify themselves. They must be identified by the true church. Now, he says, but when you're troubled, because they went out from you, they were among you, and they left you. Now, it might have troubled you a bit. That might have, you might have struggled with that. And they are struggling with it. It's been gripping this crowd. That's why John has to write this epistle and use such strong language when he writes it. To confirm them, they believe. But that belief has somewhat been shaken. It's been agitated. They believe and they love God. But there is some question and doubt that's attacking them. And it's because there were those that were among them that have left. And they are now proclaiming to still preach the real genuine gospel. But their lifestyle is completely opposite of what uh, this crowd uh, where it originated uh, is what they're claiming. Come on now. I'm telling you folks, uh, if you want to know the real, don't look uh, at what's around you. Go back to the root. Uh, oh yes, uh, I'm not going to test Pentecost. Uh, but what I see here uh, around me in the world today, uh, that's a problem. Uh, a lot of folks are rejecting Pentecost uh, because they're judging it by the majority expression that it has in this world. But if you want to judge Pentecost, open the book under Acts chapter 2 and judge it there. If you want to judge Pentecost, go back to Azusa Street. Go back to the place where men and women of God, hungry for holiness, were filled with God's power and loved Jesus Christ. Judge it at its root. Not those who have strayed away. But watch. He tells them basically, I don't want you to be shaken. You've got something. You've got an unction. You've got an anointing. Woo, glory to God. Just take that idea of anointing for a moment. In the Old Testament, three positions were, were anointed. There was the prophet that was anointed. There was the priest that was anointed. And there was the king that was anointed. Oh, I think even to David, what a day it must have been. We, when we anoint, put a little dab on the forehead. But they didn't do that. No, they took a horn. Yes, sir. Oh, the Bible talks about when Aaron was anointed. That day when the oil was poured, it ran down his beard. Hallelujah. <laughs> ran down his beard. Even ran down his garments. The Bible said it went clear down to the skirts of his garment. When he walked out of there, he was stained. He was marked. When he went out there, there was a pungency about him. There was a smell and an odor about this man because he's under the anointing of God. Hallelujah. The oil has been poured upon him. I'll tell you, for days, for days he must have smelled it. I know one thing I got a beard. And if you get something in it, you're going to know it. All right. 
Yes, sir. It'll hang right there and odor will hang right there until you wash it away. There was a smell and there's nothing like a smell to provoke a memory. You can go for years and never smell anything and, and, and a certain smell and all of a sudden one little odor and it'll take your mind back 50 years. It'll take your mind back to something you haven't had years ago. That's the power of it and that smell, that pungency of that anointing and how it left upon him. I'm telling you, it becomes unmistakable. It becomes a definite experience. It becomes something you can't lay aside. It becomes something you can refer back to and say, I know when. I know when. Glory to God. That's in the natural, but take it in the spiritual and it's deeper than that. When God takes the oil of the Spirit and pours on you, it doesn't merely leave a pleasant smell. It continues to abide as a pleasant smell. It doesn't just leave a mark upon your clothes and your face and your body. It remains there because the oil of the Spirit poured out upon us is not something inanimate like the oil, the anointing oil of the Old Testament. It's not the oil of the Spirit or the power of the Spirit. It's not the oil of simply a word from the Spirit. It's the oil of the Spirit. He is the oil. Glory. He himself is oil. So when that anointing is poured out upon us and begins to abide in us, it's not the presence of a, of a material thing. It's the presence of a person who has language, who has will, who has power, who has desire, who has strength, who has authority and dwells within us and that doesn't remain and John said you may be shaken because some folks have left your midst they went out from us because they were not of us but you've got something oh glory you've got something something's dwelling in you something has been in you and it's the oil of the spirit of God it's been poured out into your life I'm telling you and you know you know glory Glory to the Lamb of God. In other words, do not look at those who are left. Look at the oil that is still flowing in your life. Is there still in you a presence of God that is real and actual? This anointing, you know because it comes from the Holy One. John says, I've written to you in verse 21 because you know. And he says, watch what he says about this anointing in verse 27. But the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you. Remember how the confidence comes? The confidence comes because we abide in him. But before we abide in him, he comes. Happens essentially at the same time. But the initiative is always taken on God's part. We love him because he first loved us. We abide in him because he comes to abide in us. Your salvation is of such a nature that you did not take the first step. 
go back to your salvation. I'll tell you no matter how far you go back or whatever it's at, you will find out it's God who found you. It's God who discovers you. Through a multitude of circumstances, a myriad of events that you will find out at the root of it, the first step was taken by your Redeemer, not by you. And he said, but the anointing which you've received of him abideth in you, and you need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you of all things and is truth and is no lie. And even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Mm. He tells us about this anointing that has come to us. It came from the Holy One. Oh, glory. My. I think about how the devils cried out. The Lord wouldn't let them do it. They cried, we know who thou art. The Holy One of God. Oh, my. It's reminiscent of Israel as well. God was called the Holy One of Israel. We find that he is the one that inhabits eternity. He's the one that's from the beginning. He dwells in the high and holy place and inhabits eternity. This is the one who can do no sin. This is the one who can tell no lie. This is the one who can do no wrong. That's the one that told you that Antichrist is a liar. That man that says he loves God and doesn't keep his commandments, that's a liar. But the one that dwells in you, he's the Holy One. Oh, hallelujah. He comes and you to tell you the truth. And that truth lives in you and it's not a lie. And you know it's not a lie. You know the one that abides in you has taught you that which is right. And you better hold on to that. And you better know that what you got is real. I'm going to tell you sometimes things that the one thing that has kept me whenever my faith has been shaken. Someone's asked a question I didn't have the answer for. Someone gave a twist on a verse that I would not known before. And it's a moment it seems it would shake you but I'm telling you and you think ah oh, you don't need this what are you doing wasting your time what are you doing on Sunday mornings going and preaching your heart out and going and pouring your life out Sunday after Sunday Wednesday after Wednesday Thursday after Thursday Tuesday after Tuesday it doesn't mean anything it may not mean anything to you but I got to go back 45 years ago on a mountaintop at a little church in West Virginia when the Redeemer came when the anointing came and it filled my life I know what I got I was there when I got it and I didn't get it at a liberal rock concert I didn't get it by believing in a message of inclusiveness I didn't get it because someone was preaching tolerance. I got it because someone said repent of your sin. And turn your heart to God Almighty. And that anointing comes. Here's the reason. Here is the reason why we have so much diversity within Christianity today is because there are so many that occupy the pews of our churches that have never known that anointing. They do not know the experience that turned them from sin 
unto righteousness. From self unto God. From flesh to the spirit. From earth unto heaven. Oh, that day in which they picked up a cross. This is confidence I'm talking about. The pastor uh, Arcado alluded to it this morning. But uh, you see, we maybe sometimes not see the power of that. This thing is so powerful that there were people that have laid hold of it. And in a mo the moment they laid hold of it, uh, they knew the next second they could die for it. Oh, yes. So that in one hand they got hold of life and the next minute it meant death. There were many Christian or people that were converted and the, and the times when the Christians were thrown to the lions and there while they with their dignity and their integrity and their honor refused to recant Christ they refused to blaspheme the name of Jesus such honor and dignity with which they die there are people in the stands that says that's real and they go down and they give their allegiance to it and die with them let me tell you that's the power of it you'll not find any Anybody dying to be a Hindu? You'll not find anybody going out and say, I'm going to embrace Islam and die for it. No, sir. But I'm telling you, this experience is so life transforming and it is so powerful. Even when you haven't read the whole of the Bible, even when you don't even know the whole of the gospel, you don't know Genesis from Revelation, but you've got an anointing. You've got an anointing. You've got a transformation that has taken place in your life. You don't know the difference between a Unitarian and a Trinitarian. You don't know the difference between someone who espouses one doctrine of sanctification and another doctrine of sanctification. You've never read the book of Hebrews. You've not even perused the four Gospels. You just heard a message that says he has come to cleanse you and save you from your sin. You felt the shame and the guilt and the degradation of your past life. You knew you were wrong and you turned your heart to the light that shined upon your path even when you knew it would cost you your life in the very next minute. What makes somebody do that? It is not an adherence to a creed. It is not a membership on a church row. It is the presence of the third person of the Godhead that lives and dwells. And I'm telling you, when you've got what's real, don't give it up. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Quickly, that's the anointing that's taught you the truth. He's going to say this and we'll move forward. Why does he here refer to it as the anointing? Note the context. He says there are many antichrists. And these antichrists, antichrist went out from you. Christ means anointed one. It's the word Messiah, Christos. It means the one anointed by God. I said to you three offices in the Old Testament, anointed prophet, priest, and king. Christ comes, he is prophet, 
priest and king supremely. He is high priest. He is king of kings. And he is the prophet over all prophets. He is the very essence of prophecy. He's not just the prophet. He's the prophecy. <laughs> he's the one the prophet spoke about. And he is the supreme prophet. Who better to declare the prophecy than the prophet about whom the prophecy is? <laughs> Amen. And so here he is. In other words, he is the anointed one. But how do I know he's the anointed one? Glory. We've got those among us who go out from us. Antichrist they are. Because they espouse a, a, an ideal about Christ that does not conform to the original. It does conform, not conform to the original revelation of this anointed one that came. But how do I know I wasn't there? How do I know he's high priest? How do I know he's king of kings? How do I know he's the prophet? Ah, oh, yes, that is greater than all prophets. How do I know that he is the anointed one? Because the spirit of the anointed one has come upon me. Glory to the Lamb of God. The spirit of Christ, the spirit of the anointed one is now living and dwelling in me. Oh, yes, they went out because they didn't have the spirit of the anointed one. They didn't know the power of Jesus Christ. But I'm telling you, we do because we can testify. He is king. He is Lord. He is prophet. He is high priest. Again, we've got people that today in Christendom that are espousing ideas that are ludicrous. They have their debates. They do their studies. But I'm convinced they don't have the spirit of the anointed one in them. I need the word. But there's no life without the spirit. Now watch. He says here, he goes a little further and says... Now little children abide in him that when he shall appear. Let me quickly note some things about it. Now watch, watch this. I want to see. This word is found now in this passage. Beginning here six times. Verse 28, it's translated appear. Chapter 3, verse 1. Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons or the children of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God or the children of God and it doth not yet appear. The word means to be manifested, clearly seen, what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Now all of this appearing... His appearing is mentioned twice. Verse 28 in chapter 3 and verse 2 speaks about his future appearing. And he talks about our appearing with him. Paul spoke of that in Colossians 3 when he said, If ye then be risen with Christ. He talks about set your affection on things above and not on things on the earth. For you are dead and your life is hid with Christ in, in God. And when Christ who is our life shall appear, then shall you also appear with him in glory. Whenever he is speaking here about a future manifestation and a revelation, it's going to come. 
Christ is going to come and he's going to appear to the world. And when he appears to the world, the true saint is going to appear with him. Yes. Right now, in actuality, we are not known. We are known somewhat by those among us, but the world does not know us. The world sees us as a social club. The world sees us as a bunch of religious fanatics. The world sees us as just some folks trying to keep alive some strange and ancient practice. Traditionalist we are. Old-fashioned bigots. We're just folks from yesteryear. We take our place among the other religions of the world. That's how they see us. But it's because we haven't yet appeared. <laughs> our life is hid with Christ in God. Christ himself has not appeared in the sense that every man sees him as he is. Some see him as just a moral teacher. Some see him as a religious founder. Some see him as just another prophet alongside Abraham, alongside Moses, and alongside Muhammad. Some see him as just a God among gods. But to us, he has appeared. <laughs> oh, glory. He did appear. He talks about it. We'll get to it in just a second. And further down in the passage, he talks about him appear. But I just want you to see for a moment that all of Christ and all that he is is not apparent under the world. They've got all kinds of different opinions, but we go out and we preach Him. Oh, hallelujah. And the Spirit of God is able to illuminate minds and open them up so that the one that's invisible becomes visible through the presence and the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. Ooh, glory. And then when you see Him and you adopt Him and He adopts you and you are in Him and He is in you and the Spirit of Christ dwells in you, then you look oh, at those that you first thought were weirdos. And now you say they're not so weird anymore. You look at those people and you thought, why they go to church all the time and now you join them? Why do they sing like that and now you're singing with them? Why do they dress like that and now you're dressing like them? It wasn't because they forced it on you. It's because he appeared. The glory of God was manifest. The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared and taught you that he lives and he dwells. And now you have seen the true nature of those that believe in him. But one day the world will see just who we are. Now watch. What has he done? He speaks and now he turns. He speaks of his future appearance. And then he quickly turns to speak about his past, his past manifestation. In verse 5, he speaks about two reasons why he appeared. Verse 5 of chapter 3. And you know that he was manifested. This word manifested is the same Greek word as appear. So I could say this, and you know that he appeared. That's what he did. He appeared. God became visible and dwelt among us. And why did he appear? Why did God become visible among us? Why was he manifested to take away our sins and in him is no sin? You can't take away sin if you're bound to sin. You can't liberate when you yourself are a slave. If the Son makes you free, 
you will be free indeed because the son is not bound. The son himself has liberty and he can therefore give that liberty to you. Then he speaks again in verse 8. He that committed sin is of the devil, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God appeared, was manifested, that he might destroy the works of the devil. He talks about two reasons he appeared. This is his first appearing. His first appearing, and that's the appearing that you and I are now living with. That's the appearing that you and I are now uh, connected to and that our life is tied to that very purpose is being, has been accomplished in our life for what purpose did he came come for he came number one to take away our sin here we were bound in it this is important in this entire book because there are folks that claim to be Christians and they are saying you can live a life of habitual sin and have fellowship with God and John said that is contrary to the very appearing because when he became visible. The reason God walked among us, he didn't come here to entertain us. He didn't come here to impress us. He didn't come here to demonstrate just some great power so we could Google and say, oh, that was great. Oh, that was mighty. And then go back to glory. He came here because we had a problem. He came here because we were enslavement. He came here because we were bound. We were in our sin in the depths of darkness. And he reached into that sin and he pulled us out. He came to take away our sin. I like this. There's a bulk of Christendom that will have no problem with that declaration. It's the second one that bothers them. The first reason for his appearing doesn't bother people because they will admit, yes, God forgives. Yes, God comes and erases our faults. We do not have a problem with that. It's the second one we have a problem with. John makes a statement that quite frankly, listen to me. Verse 8 again, listen to his statement because it will rattle your teeth. He that committeth sin is of the devil. He'll use another term for him in this book. Calls him the wicked one. The wicked one. He talks about the whole world lying in him. He talks about those that are of the wicked one. The word devil means slanderer. It means one who speaks ill, untruth about another in order to damage and harm. That's what the devil does. He says, for the devil sinneth from the beginning. Now this idea of he that committeth is in a form that is the idea of an ongoing action. It does not mean that one act of sin places you in the realm of the devil. An act of sin can be committed by a Christian but will immediately be dealt with in order to maintain the harmony and fellowship of Jesus Christ. Sin not dealt with will move from an act 
to a lifestyle. Sin not placed under the blood and forsaken. He that covereth his sin shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them, he shall have mercy, the Bible says. So when the Bible says he that committeth sin is of the devil, John is saying the man that lives a life of habitual lawlessness, iniquity, transgression of the law, disobedience, immorality, the man that lives that kind of lifestyle, self-centeredness, Sin is seen in varied forms. And it's very root, it's selfishness. Show me the man motivated by self and I do not care how many good things he does. He's of the devil. When the life is habitually lived in wickedness, it's habitually lived according to a lie and not the truth. The devil is a slanderer again. He is a liar from the beginning. He's a murderer from the beginning. I showed you that out of John's gospel chapter 8. But he said he sinneth from the beginning. For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of, of the devil. Did you see that? He says that he came and, and was manifested to destroy the works of the devil. Whoever commits sin, whoever practices sin, whoever lives a life of sinning every day, I'm going to say it so many ways so you understand what I'm talking about. Whoever lives a life of habitual enslavement, whoever can't quit their sin, whoever has not left their sin whoever has not abandoned their sin whoever has not denied self and taken up the cross whoever has not left that lifestyle of rebellion and disobedience to God I'm telling you right now you're of the devil and if you're of the devil what do you mean you're of the devil because you're doing the works of the devil and what are the works of the devil they are works of murder they are works of fornication they are works of the lying they are works of selfishness. They are works of flesh. And Jesus didn't come just to take away your sin in terms of past transgression. He came to destroy the present lifestyle. He came to destroy the works of the devil. Do you get the connection? I know I'm being overly simplistic. Do you see the connection? Whoever sins habitually is of the devil. Because the devil started this business. So in other words, you have his spirit. When he says you're of the devil, he doesn't mean that necessarily the devil has birthed you. Or that you're a witch. Or that you're a... Uh, um, some kind of uh, necromancer or involved in some kind of occult. That's not what he says. It's not what he means. Being of the devil means that you have the same mindset, that you have the same drive. It means you have the same spirit. He called it in Ephesians to the spirit that works in the children of disobedience. The prince of this world. You live by that prince. You live by his principles. Therefore you of him. 
I, I could tell you, say of somebody, well, you're, you're of that liberal crowd down there. That's where you are. You're of that crowd over there. I don't mean so much that you attend there or you go to their meetings. I mean that you have their same spirit. You have their same mindset. You live like they live. And that's what he says when he says you're of the devil. And now that's why he says he comes to destroy the works of the devil. And when he destroys the works of the devil, notice he didn't say he came to destroy the devil. He hasn't destroyed him yet. He will one day destroy him, but he has not done that yet. The devil is still free to move about. The devil still has power to seduce. He still has power to traverse the earth and to uh, enslave and power to, to, to beguile men and women that are on this earth. The devil is free to roam and go about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He has not been destroyed. Oh, but his works have been destroyed. Glory. Oh, yes, there was a day when we were a part of his work. We followed his way. We were being shaped by his hands. We followed his ideology. We followed his theology. We lived by the way, the same way the devil lives. But I tell you what we did. God entered into the strong man's house. He went in there and he bound the strong man. And he says, I'm taking this one. Glory to the Lamb of God. Ah, you can't have them anymore. They're going to believe on me. And when we believe on Jesus, he brings us out of the strong man's house. And he liberates us and sets us on the path of righteousness. And he destroys the work of the devil. We no longer do as the devil does. His works of lying. His works of selfishness. His works of deceit. His works of murder. His works of hate. His works of jealousy. His works of suspicion. His works of bitterness. All these are his works. And that's what God came to do. Destroy. He didn't come just to destroy the fruit. He came to destroy the root. He didn't come just to take care of the past acts. He came to destroy the actions. I'm out of time. If you give me a minute, I'm going to close with this right here and then we'll wait and finish this afternoon. Something happens here. Forgive me taking a few long, a little bit of time this morning. Something happens here. He says he was manifest to take away your sin and destroy the works. But he's going to be manifest. He's going to appear again. He's going to appear again. When he appears again, you're going to appear with him. What's it going to be like when we appear with him? I don't know. You have no idea what it's going to be like when we come back to this earth to reign with Jesus Christ. You can speak of its glory and its wonder and preach and we can shout and we know it's glorious. But when I've actually got that horse beneath me. When I can actually feel the robe around me. I think we get a little glimpse of what our initial action. This very writer who laid his head on his breast, who he said, if I will that he tarry till I come, what's that to you? This very writer of this epistle was so intimately connected to Christ 
that you receive one of the greatest, revelation, greatest revelations that man has ever known. And writes what we call the apocalypse or the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But when that very man who loved him, who penned this and said that which is from the beginning, which our eyes have seen, which we have heard, which we've seen, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life. This very man who was such boldness will declare the glory and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ without fear. He walks into a place, there's no doubts, there's no shaking, there's no quivering, there's no timidity. And he declares Jesus Christ. He's so bold that he will go and be a political outcast. He would not, according to his own will, but against his will, be cast out. Put on the Isle of Patmos. But he's not shaken in his faith. He's not in any way backed down from his belief in the Spirit of God. One day he's in the Spirit. And all of a sudden a voice behind him. Like the sound of Niagara Falls. Many waters crashing down. A voice like a trumpet that's sounding loud. If I had one, I'd blow it. So loud, it just would just shake you in the depths of your being. And he said, I turned to see the voice. And being turned, I saw one whose head and hair were white like wool, whose eyes were as a flame of fire, who was girded about the paps with a golden girdle. He said his feet were like feet that burned in a furnace like brass. Oh, he talks about such a glorious appearance. And then all of a sudden, when he sees that, and it begins to just get a hold of him, you know what he does? He doesn't do a dance a jig. He doesn't shout and run around. He doesn't say a hallelujah. The wind is taken out of his sails. The breath leaves his body. He falls at his feet on his face like a dead man. How do you speak in that presence? How do you stand up, John? He's still in flesh. John is still dwelling in an unglorified body and in the face of such glory the only thing he can do is fall down and not utter a word. Humanity has no right to speak in the presence of such majesty and the presence of such glory. A man of God who's as close as you can get will fall on his face and say I became as a dead man. He didn't move a muscle. He didn't breathe a word. He never breathed a sigh. He didn't say anything. He didn't blink an eye until the hand said fear not. Fear not. Oh glory to the Lamb of God. Woo! Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Stand to your feet this morning. How will it be, Brother John, when now, today, today you're an aged man. Today, you are not able to do what you once did. Today, Brother John, you find yourself 
limited. If Jesus tarries, one day this piece of clay will be laid in the earth. It does not yet appear what we shall be. We go the way of every other human being. We work the same jobs. Yes, we live different lives. But to them, we're just a different breed of humanity. We all are conquered by the tomb. But what will it be like? What will it be like on that day, Brother John? That when you, after having been in, if you go before the rapture and die in your spirit and soul in the glory. Think with me just a moment, please. There in the glorious realm of heavens, I don't know who the Lord may let you see and talk to. I'm sure you are not concerned about loved ones as much as you are caught up with the one that John fell before his feet as a dead man. Your eyes, John, will be that of your soul, which will have form. It has form presently as it deals, lives in that body. I can't see it. But there with hand and eyes and mouth, you glorify the one that sits on the throne. You go to see the one that Stephen saw. When Stephen, and they are stoning him, he doesn't look up and see mama. He didn't look up and see papa. They're probably still alive. He didn't look up and see Moses. He didn't look up and see Abraham. He said, I see him standing. I tell you who he saw. The one who died for him. The one who said the right hand of God. That's all he had to see. That's all he needed. Moses doesn't matter at that point. Abraham is unimportant. Joshua is insignificant. I want to see him. Oh, I want to see him and look upon his face. There to sing forever of his saving grace. What will that feel like? I don't know what it'll feel like. But I will have no problem operating. Because Christ will suit me for that moment. Woo, glory. And I will rejoice. And it will seem as if you were there. Two or three minutes, you will be so mesmerized by the girdle of gold. The eyes of fire will so take in awe you that you will not in any way get caught up in the surroundings. You care nothing for the city at this point. You don't need a tour. You're just absolutely captivated by the glory of the king. Oh, hallelujah. And all of a sudden, it seems you've been there maybe two minutes, two seconds. 15 seconds. You haven't even got a few hallelujahs out of your mouth because you've been so full of awe stricken. And all of a sudden, he looks at you and he looks into the rest of the host and says, gather around. We're going back. Woo! Hallelujah! You're going to get your body now. You're going to have its time. And your spirit comes back. And maybe we're still here preaching it. Maybe on a Sunday morning. Oh, yes. In a new building at 601 Page Road. And out of the cemetery rises up a saint. And we rise up and meet him. What's it going to be like? 